Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving to you. This is a great, beautiful day here in the nation's capital, and we're glad that you're on to talk about everything cooperative. This morning, we have from Cincinnati, Mr. Phil Amadon on the line with us this morning. Good morning, Phil. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing just great. Uh, how's your Thanksgiving going so far? Well, it's going good. I got some pecan pies done, and uh, everybody seems to like my pecan pies, so I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm excited. <laughs> well, I wish I was in, Phil- in Cincinnati to get some of your pecan pies. So what else do you have to be thankful for this morning besides pecan pies? Well, we got a beautiful day. It's kind of cool. We have a good football team and uh I got a lot of a lot of good family around in the area and I'm looking forward to seeing people. Well, you know, I was glad to meet you and see you in Cincinnati a couple of weeks ago if it's been that long uh at the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative Conference. Tell me, how did you get involved in that? Well, originally in my family, there was cooperatives going back as early as I can remember. Both my grandfather were farmers in co-ops. My dad was a farmer in a co-op. And uh, it was a common topic when I was growing up. And uh, it seemed like when the cooperative movement started talking about uh, worker ownership and um, unions working together, I got really excited about that. And uh, I got together with some other organizers in Cincinnati, and we formed the Cincinnati Union Cooperative Initiative to get this type of co-op off the ground. We call it the Union Co-op Template, and it's based on the experience of the Mondragon Co-ops in Spain, which is the largest industrial co-ops in the world and the United Steelworkers of America. And the United Steelworkers are, in my opinion, one of our finest unions, and um, they're forward-thinking, and the leader of that union has uh, been really interested in co-ops since he was a young fellow. So all those, they're kind of like currents in a stream, and they all flowed together in uh, 2009, when Mondragon and the steelworkers met, and under the direction of Leo Gerard, Rob Witherall, and others in the steelworkers, negotiated with the Mondragon Co-op and signed this new agreement to provide a, a foundation for people in North America to work on building co-ops, worker-owned co-ops, and have union involvement and. Uh, that's what I'm involved in right now. That's what I'm giving my time to. 
But Phil, you talked about your grandfather's being farmer than your father being a farmer. But I think I read somewhere you um, you worked on a railroad. You you weren't a farmer, were you? No, no. I I grew up around farms, but I worked on the railroad for thirty two years as a journeyman mechanic. A journeyman mechanic. The reason I that caught my attention because my father was on the railroad, and a couple years in the in the summers when I was in college, I was a brakeman on the railroad. Uh, oh, that's what right. he did. Yeah, all right. So so were you in the union on, in the railroad? Yeah, I was uh, president of my local for a while, and I was vice chairman for many years. And uh, I also did the finances for a year. And uh, I'm still labor council delegate for my union local, even though I'm not working. I'm off with a disability. I'm not working day to day, but I'm volunteering for my time. Well, you worked 32 years in the railroad, and you were in a union. And the yeah. reason I brought that up, because uh, my father was in a union. I was not in a union when I worked in the summers, because it was only summer work. But I did yeah. work nine months uh, at Ford in Detroit mm-hmm. in 1966. I, I didn't have enough money to go to college. I went to college one semester in 1965. Mm-hmm. Didn't have any money, so I went to work in Detroit, and I was in a union. Got a sense of how the union worked. But I, I knew from that nine months of working at Ford, I didn't want to do that work all my life, although I liked, I liked the unions and what the unions stood for for the workers. Well, one of the good things is that segments of the United Auto Workers are really interested in this uh, model as well. And we're, December 5th, some of us are going down to Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, meet with a, a group of people trying to build co-ops on the union co-op model in Nashville, and uh, they're they're founded in a UAW local down there that builds windshields for Ford. And uh, also, Mr. Bob King, former head of the United Auto Workers, is part of our committee, uh, our national committee that we're forming to help build union co-ops in manufacturing. Well, Mr. King, I I met him in Cincinnati also, and he's going to be on the program January the 7th. We've scheduled him to be on and talk about this union co-op model, this template you're talking about. So he, he has decided to be on, and I was very glad to meet him, as I was glad to meet you, Phil. Phil, uh, what does this, well, you said Mondragon, Mondragon, M-O-N-D-R-A-G-O-N, Spain, or Italy? Yeah. Spain or Italy? Spain. Spain, okay. Spain. Yeah. Mondragon, Spain. Yeah. And you said that's the co-ops. We did have somebody on, Michael um, Peck Peck was on a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, and he talked to Mondragon. But just in case somebody's on that does not know what Mondragon, uh, the co-author, could you give us a sense of what that's about? Yeah, well, right now, uh, Mondragon involves a group of over 100 co-ops that build everything from machine tools to um, construction parts, auto parts. They represent a a giant grocery store chain, and uh, they they have approximately 81,000 workers, and uh, they are based in Spain, in a part of Spain called the Basque region. It's a region that has its own language and its own nationality, but it's it's still part of Spain. But during the uh, Civil War in Spain, 
this area was destroyed and there was massive unemployment and massive poverty. And at the end of the Civil War, one of the survivors of the Civil War was a priest called Father Arizmendi, and he was assigned to the little town of Mondragon in the mountains of Spain. And he determined that the only way that the community would be rebuilt was through its own efforts. And the best way to harness those efforts was to use the natural solidarity of the Basque people and uh, their skills as industrial workers and build co-ops. And they started out with four people, four or five, and uh, they're now up to 81,000. From from the middle 1950s until today, they, they took off with five and are growing still, and they reduced the unemployment rate in that part of Spain to a way less than the national average. And uh, these co-ops are successfully competing in the world economy and have got subsidiaries and business interests around the world. And they're at at a stage now where they feel like it's really important for their future growth to help other co-ops get out, worker-owned co-ops get off the ground. So that's what they're doing. They're helping us build worker-owned co-ops to build a, a, a better network of worker-owned co-ops around the world to support each other. So I'm going to summarize what I heard you say. They started in the mid-50s, so I, I put 1955 to 2015, it's 60 years. They've been in business yeah. from 60 years. They started with five people, and now they have 81,000. They started with one co-op, now they have over 100 co-ops. Hundred different businesses because a co-op for those of you out there that don't know it could be any business you can think of could be a co-op and there are normally two major types and that is a if the employees own it it's called a worker-owned cooperative and if the people that use the products or services own it then it's called a consumer cooperative and consumer co-ops are housing co-ops credit unions uh, where the consumers and there was one health clinic uh, Phil I interviewed about two months ago up in Madison. A health clinic was owned by the patients. So it's a patient-centric health care clinic, which is just a lot of exciting things that they're doing in a different way yeah. that they do things. So that's the, the consumer co-op and then a worker-owned co-op. It could be any. And you just mentioned in Mondragon, Spain, machine tools, automobile parts. Grocery stores can be either a consumer co-op where the people that buy the groceries own it, or it can be an employee-owned co-op or worker cooperative if the employees own it, or they have some where both own it. Um, so you can have different types. And then the other two main types, and mostly that's what the farmers did, and Phil talked about his both grandfathers being farmers, they come together and they form a co-op to purchase things so they can get by in volume and get a lower price normally. That could yeah. be gas, fertilizer, seed, or they f- come together to sell their products and that's called a marketing co-op? Did I have it right, Phil? Yeah, the two co-ops that uh, my family has been involved in, one is the Cabot Co-op in Vermont that sells cheese and that, that, that is made from the milk of the dairy farmers that belong to the co-op. And the other one is Riceland Foods in Arkansas and where rice farmers sell their rice through the Riceland Foods Co-op. And one last thing, you were mentioning that a grocery store can be a hybrid of both worker-owned 
ownership and consumer ownership, and that, in fact, is what Mondragon has done with their grocery store chain, Eroski. Both the consumers and the workers own it together. And it's just a lot of fascinating things can happen when when you have the people that buy the products that own it or patients in, in, the, in, the, in the clinic owns it so that they end up, and this is what, one of the things that exciting to me, uh, Phil, of calls me to love co-ops is that the members then decide policies and procedures. The members decide who's going to be on the board of directors. Uh, each member, one member, one vote for, for something like a consumer or grocery co-op. When they get ready to, di- to divide the dividends, the members decide how, and there's a formula. And normally that formula is for a grocery co-op, the more you buy in terms of percentages, then that's how much of the dividends you get back. So it's, it's all based on how much you use the products or services to when there are dividends, how much of the dividends you get back. So I love this co-op for building social wealth, building financial wealth. They are really fascinating. But there's something else that you said that I like about Mondragon. You said that the past, the priests that came in said that they, they, the only way they could build it is if they do it themselves. Did I get that right? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, self-help, right. Which is one of the values of co-ops, self-help. Yeah, and I think it's a really important value. I think, uh, you know, there was co-ops started by abolitionists during the pre-Civil War period where escaped slaves and abolitionist activists who ha- were having a rough time getting any kind of help once they crossed the uh, slavery line and escaped toward freedom from chattel slavery that they they would have a hard time finding work. So there was a couple of notable co-ops started by abolitionists. One was in Massachusetts that I know about. And so Journal Truth worked there, along with uh, Frederick Douglass, came by, uh, according to an account that I read, he came by on a regular basis to pick her up for speeches and, and uh, presentations that they would make together. And uh, the other one that I heard about is just right across the Ohio River in Ohio, where abolitionists made a co-op and escaped slaves participated in working and earning and owning their own business in a situation where they could not otherwise own own their own business. And uh, I think that's a really his, really important historical thing. We need a lot more research in that area in the co-op movement. I'm glad you brought that up because I would encourage everybody out there to get the book uh, Collective Carriage by Jessica Gordon Nimhard. Uh, she, uh, the subtitle is The History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. And so she goes back through all of that. And when you spoke, uh, Phil, in Cincinnati, you started your presentation off with that history, that history that goes back to the 1850s, uh, which I, I, I was immediately drawn to you because I'm, I didn't like history in school, Phil. I didn't like it because in the books that I that I that I had did not have anything in there about African American history. And Jessica said on this program that when she first started doing the research, she was told it was a waste of time because there wasn't much history. And she said she just keeps uncovering history, like you just said. The Underground Railroad was a cooperative. 
uh, people pulling their resources together to meet a goal to solve a community problem, and slavery was a community problem. So, yes, I I did not know about these two particular co-ops that you're talking about in Massachusetts. And when you say on the other side of Ohio, are you talking about in Kentucky, the other co-op? No, this would be uh, this would be right across from Kentucky in Ohio, okay. on on free soil. But it was very close to the river where the slave hunters would cross the river and try and hunt down escaped slaves who had crossed the Ohio from Kentucky. So it, it's a co-op that was very near to uh, slave territory. Last week, we had a gentleman call in uh, about repatriation, um, about trying to get the U.S. government uh, or state governments to to give back blacks, the people from slavery, pay them money for the harm. And although I like that in in, context, um, in in sort of a theory, I like that idea, but I just don't believe that will happen. Or I think it would be hard-pressed to prove it and to get that done. So I like the idea of getting people, particular people of color, to go out and form co-ops so that we can build our own. The same thing that the priest said to the folks in Spain in 1955, do it yourself. Let's let's get together and form businesses. Whether this union co-op model I like a lot. And when Michael Peck was on, I started to feel by saying, well, let's get Ford. I mean, let's see if we can buy up Ford and get the workers to buy up Ford. And he was saying, yeah, but we could also maybe get the government and all of the different businesses, uh, the quasi-government businesses, if the workers in those co-ops owned it, then it would have to spread out the finance. So there's a lot we can do, and I'd like this a lot. Yes, yes, there is a lot we can do. And uh, I also think that uh, there is a lot of potential for the future of the union co-ops movement in the African-American community. I, I think one of the key the key things about it is that after World War II, what I found in my economic studies is that African-American workers benefited a lot from uh, unionized manufacturing jobs until the gutting of that manufacturing base in the industrial belt cities in the early 80s and on. But uh, if we can rebuild some of those high-value-added, high high, higher-paying manufacturing jobs. You know, if you have a service job, uh, sometimes you might be able, every worker might be might be creating, say, $20 an hour above what you're paid in value added. And uh, in manufacturing, sometimes you can get as higher than $200 an hour per worker in terms of value added. So there's just more wealth created to draw on, to build benefit packages to build retirement packages. So it's really important for co-ops to get into manufacturing, in my view. Well, Phil, we want to come back to that, but we got somebody on the line. Yeah. Um, so can yeah. we get this question or, or comment? Yeah. Um, how you doing, gentlemen? Hi. You what? know, I, I, I listened to you. Who is this first? Who is this first? Oh, I'm sorry. This is Joe from Cleveland. Oh, Joe, come on. Talk to us from Cleveland. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I was listening to you talk about, uh, you know, the history situation and, uh, you know, how you had to, anything you really learned about the uh, history of uh, black history in America, you had to self-teach. And I think it's, I think it's a horrible crime. Uh, I think one of the reasons why 
uh, our government don't want to put the history, black history, into the minds of the American youth is because they know that they committed crimes against humanity. And I think that, you know, crime against humanity is just like murder in a sense that it's never too late to charge a person or an entity with that charge. And I want to yeah. ask the gentleman that, that, you're, that, you're, uh, that you're talking with, do you, do you feel, and I'll, I'll accept your answer, do you feel America should be charged with crimes against humanity? Theo, what do you think? One of the things that I think is that in terms of an argument in favor of charging the United States government with aiding, abetting, and spreading slavery, that's absolutely true. I believe that slavery both is a crime and was a crime, and it has been a crime even when it was accepted as part of the Constitution. And... uh, then I also believe that promise of reconstruction, and there there's a great book out there for any listeners who haven't read it. It's W.E.B. Du Bois wrote this book called Black Reconstruction in the South, and it, it is a great description of the period that some people have summed up as the 40-acre and a mule thing where the United States government promised freed slaves, 40 acres and a mule. And some people have argued all you have to do is take that promise of what 40 acres and a mule would constitute in wealth creation over the 160-some years since that promise was made, and you have a, a format for compensation. Now, people might say, well, 40 acres and a mule isn't much, but if you think about people creating wealth with that, Back when a good mule was better than a tractor, and 40 acres was a good-sized plot of land, that's a sizable compensation if you multiply it into the future and bring it up to to present. So I guess that's my my answer. I don't know how good of an answer that is, but that's the best I can do. uh, Phil, let me me add to that. I think that's a very, very good answer that you started off by saying slavery was a crime. It still is a crime, even though it was accepted in the Constitution. And I totally agree with you. I also believe what America did to Native Americans was as bad a crime, if not worse a crime. What what Americans have done throughout the world in terms of greed and capitalism, most of it is economic-based, to try to get money, to try to build wealth for themselves, believing in this superior concept of white supremacy. Uh, Phil is a European American. He is white. You hear what he has said. You also need to know, if you don't know, that, that the people in the Underground Railroad were mainly white. They were Quakers. They were different religious sects. They believed that racism was a crime, and they wanted to help people get out, black people to get out. And so there are, there are whites that wanted to enslave us, and there was whites that wanted to help us get out of it. And I think that would still be the case today. But we are going to have to take a break. We'll come right back. This is a great conversation. Thank you, Joe, for bringing up the question. Uh, We'll take our first break. Phil, please stay on. We'll be right back. Okay.
Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Uh, this Thursday morning, Happy Thanksgiving. We had a lot to be thankful for this this at this point in our lives. We got the sun is up, the air we can breathe. Uh, we I ate breakfast this morning. I have so much to be thankful for things that I don't even know about. And we are we live in a country with a great economy. We just want to make it better and believing that co-ops can make it better for everybody because right now the one, 1% of Americans get 60% of all new income. All new income made this year goes, 60% of it goes to 1% of Americans and the other 99% of us get 40. And the people that are in the 60% or below, they get very, very little of new income. And that's what I want to see us change around. Because uh, Phil, what I, the history that I read, we were talking about history, is uh, as this this gap gets bigger and bigger between the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, uh, that's when you, you get into um, people fighting each other and you get into civil wars and everything. So I would like to see us solve this problem before people go to the street when they don't have enough money. And I really believe that union co-op, I believe co-op is the answer, and when unions and co-ops come together, both trying to work for the majority of the people. I think that's a huge answer. So can we go back now to talking about the Cincinnati Union Co-op and some of the things that you did at this conference that you had November 13th and 14th? You were talking about manufacturing, but let's go to this piece of the farm and going from the farm to the plate. The shorter distance we can get from farm foods to the plate, uh, what's that called? Food hubs? Is that what that's called? Yeah. We, we started a cooperative food hub with the United Food and Commercial Workers Union helping us out. And uh, we have at this time, uh, I think there's 18 or 19 workers there. And uh, people are, are raising food in urban farming. And uh, they are aggregating urban farm food from around the city from other other farmers and marketing it to marketing outlets around the city. So the food hub aggregates farm produce and and then gets it to the retail outlets. And the farm itself grows the produce as part of the uh, basis for the co-op because sometimes the supply of food to sell is not enough for just the co-op just to be based on it, aggregation of other people's produce. And uh, one of the important things about it is that we try to be re- realistic because there's a lot of romantic ideas about farming among some people who don't realize how difficult farming really is. And we, we've tried to, we set up a foundation to train new farmers in the area and that includes training around some of the economic realities of growing vegetables. You know, one one of the things that's going on in the vegetable industry is that California, Arizona, and Mexico have been leading the way in terms of mass production of vegetables for a long time. But the cost of transportation and the drought in the West has to some degree affected the economics of produce. And a lot more people are interested in buying what they call locally grown. And usually locally grown means vegetables that are grown within a 
100, 150 miles, sometimes 50 miles. It depends on who you talk to. But a lot of people are, are starting to get interested in uh, locally grown produce. And in the east, Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland, Pennsylvania, cities, in Washington, D.C., all, the, all these cities 60, 70 years ago had a lot of what they used to call truck farms where fresh vegetables were grown and sold in the city. But a lot of that uh, infrastructure broke down because of competition from California produce, which basically ran a lot of people out of business in the 50s and 60s. But now it's coming back, and part of the basis of that is people growing organically and there being an increased demand for organic produce locally grown. So that's our main interest in in this uh, our harvest food hub and farming co-op. Well, I visited a, um, a food co-op in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not go to the store, but I was in a meeting where they had a presentation about it. And this was a food co-op that went upstate New York to buy their foods. And all around New York City, they were buying food, uh, that's that locally grown food. And so that the co-ops, that the farming co-ops that grew the food to sell to the co-op that end up selling the food and so forth. So it seemed that this, I think it's the sixth principle of co-ops, cooperation among cooperatives. That's what they were doing, and they were very, very successful financially uh, in, in, in these arrangements. So it's it's happening. I would love to see it happen. In, I was just thinking in here in D.C., we have Rock Creek Park, and we have several parks. There's one park I drive through. And they have the community farms where different people will come out and grow their own. And when I visited your Our Harvest Farm uh, and just looked at it, it's, your Our Harvest Farm is just a little bit bigger from my site than this community farm. So, But if, the, if those people would get together and create a co-op and then sell their produce, that would, that, that would be phenomenal. And if the city then, if we could find other people that want to create farming, and get this training to do yeah. urban farming. That would be fantastic in every region, particularly right here where I live. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of wasted land in, in a lot of urban areas now where it's not being used for any economic purpose, and um, it, it could be potentially fertile land that could be useful to people in terms of healthy food and jobs. So I... I hear what you're saying, and uh, uh, we'd be glad to help with any of that if we can. So, Thank you. Thank you very much. I um, was wondering when I visited our harvest farm, was the food looked like I, I just really wanted to go pick some kale and some collards and eat it right there. It looked so good and so green and so fresh. But what keeps the people, because there weren't any fences up, no dogs running around, or no, I didn't see any security cameras, Living here in the city, I would think that people just come out and pick it. Does people just not do that, or they just respect the farm? Well, there, there's been some uh, rob, robbing of some of the vegetables, but not not too much. There was one particular guy who, who seemed astounded when we confronted him because he was actually 
digging whole plants up and taking them home. And uh, we confronted him with it, and uh, he was kind of surprised. He, he seemed to be uh, astounded that this was an actual working farm and that, that he was taking our livelihood. <laughs> but uh, that one example was uh, pretty rare uh, in the last number of years, and it seems like there's maybe one or two instances a year uh, and then most of the rest of the time, people in the neighborhood come over and buy buy stuff from us. So it's kind of, um, as a matter of fact, they, there's a group of people whose relatives come up from Tennessee to get, to get some of our mustard greens because they're known to be uh, really, really good from the soil that we have there. Well, I would have loved to have had some mustard greens. I was trying to think of how to, I saw you could buy it by the bushel, and I was trying to figure out, well, what friend do I know down there? We could go cook it, and I could bring some back to D.C. with me. It looked that good. So, yes, yeah. I could see that. Well, um, we'd love to get you some. Maybe maybe we'll work that out sometime. <laughs> okay. What besides the, the food hub are you are you all working on in Cincinnati? What, what other projects do you have? Well, we have a... Um, construction co-op that is working on uh, insulating houses to improve the energy uh, consumption of people living in their homes or apartments. And uh, that's called Sustainergy, and we just got that off the ground. But it's got a lot of potential to spread to other cities because it's a model that takes people into the, a couple of the construction trades, the insulators union and the electricians union in particular, and uh, they they learn the skills of uh, estimating what kind of uh, insulation needs and what kind of energy needs a house has, how they can save the consumer money, and plugging it into a uh, overall system that, that's a, a lot of uh, since. Energy deregulation, a lot of big players are coming in to cities and, and working on these um, energy efficiency retrofits. But they need they need the folks to do the work. They may set them up and everything, but they need the folks to do the work. And, and our co-op is one of the businesses doing the work. We also um, have worked on trying to bring manufacturing, cooperative manufacturing, and uh, we reconstituted a, uh, a national manufacturing co-op committee. And uh, that, I feel like, is one of the exciting things that came out of the conference, in, in my opinion. Because one of the things that you really need is to have a, a national monitoring of manufacturing businesses where the owners are getting ready to retire, but let's say nobody in their family of the next generation wants to take over, which is true a lot of times. People want to travel the world or have some kind of job where they can have a lot of free time, not necessarily run a factory. So one of the most important things that I think is going to come out of this committee is that we're going to try and compile information so we can help each other if, if uh, we find a manufacturing firm that's going out of business so that we can use financing resources and help the employees buy out the owner who's retiring. And the activists around this issue seem to say that that's 
one of the best ways to obtain worker co-ops in manufacturing that aren't just uh, taking over businesses that are going bankrupt, but rather taking over healthy businesses that are doing well. It's just that the owner is getting ready to retire and has nobody to take over. You know, I, uh, I was impressed with uh, Erica Sweeney, who spoke at your conference, 30-year-old African-American young lady whose father has been working in manufacturing. And as I understood it, father was supposed to speak and couldn't for some reason uh, conflict, and she came down, and she brightened up that conference with her enthusiasm and youth and energy. <laughs> so, Yeah, and she's working uh, on that problem and issue in Chicago area, and uh, yeah, that's a great development, what they've got going there. And I agree with you. She did fire up and brighten up the room a lot. Um, so you got construction, manufacturing, uh, food hubs. One of um, what I was surprised, I just got a new book, and I don't know if you know about it, Phil. It's called Cities Building Community Wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it came out November this month, this year by Democracy Collaborative, and I was surprised that Cincinnati was not in here from all that you were doing, but uh, Cleveland is in here. So, Joe, from Cleveland, if you get this book and read about what Cleveland is doing, uh, I do know about the Evergreen Co-ops in Cleveland, which consists of four co-ops. So there is a lot going on in co-ops. So the Evergreen Co-ops, they have, if I can get this real quick, I know they have energy solutions where they're they're building solar panels and putting putting well, I know they're putting them on I don't know if they're building them they have a green city co-op uh, gro- growers they grow veggies and then they have have a evergreen cooperative laundry they they built they have 40 people in each one of those approximately so that's 120 people that they've created jobs for so there's a lot going on in Cleveland. It seemed like a lot going on in Cincinnati. Washington, D.C. was not in this book. I'd like for the next one to come out. We would have D.C. in here and, and maybe uh, some uh, Maryland cities. Hey, well, I, I've taken a tour of the, of the laundry up in Cleveland, and it's very impressive. And uh, I wish them well. Well, they have the, the uh, piece there. They're, looking, they're working with universities and hospitals. Because they and looking at different kinds of businesses that these universities and hospitals need, and then help to put businesses together, cooperative business, where uh, these low-income community folks can come in and work in this business and learn how to work the business, to grow the business, and manage the business. So it seems to be a great way of this health self-help we were talking about, the self-help value of people coming together getting into a business, learning how to manage the business and learn how to grow the business and working the business to create financial and uh, social wealth. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the other things you guys are thinking about? Well, one of the things that we've been working on for a while also is cooperative uh, community improvements in housing. And uh, we have a couple of ladies that uh, have been organizing a form of cooperatives where the people come in and if they pay their rent on time, if they keep their apartment orderly and in good shape, they get some kinds of financial return. And over time, that builds up equity for them. And as far as the owners of the apartment complexes that use this model, it's positive for them because what it does is it increases occupancy and uh, 
when I understand it, that's a major problem for landlords is constant turnover. And uh, this program actually builds on the idea of people staying put, keeping their apartment complex uh, in such a way that people want to stay, that people feel good about staying, and then eventually it builds up equity for them as they run through a checklist of things that they can do to help the, help keep the property solvent and in good order. You, you know, uh, Phil, I spoke to Carol Smith there at, the, at, at, yeah. at your conference, and she's one of the ladies. She gave me the name of the lady who, who came up with this idea, but I haven't had a chance to talk to her. I want to get one of those persons on the radio program. How I learned about co-ops was through managing uh, housing co-ops. And when I've looked at the research that National Co-op Bank funded uh, to get an independent uh, group to do the research, they compared HUD-funded housing co-ops to HUD-funded apartments. And every statistics, every model, every variable you could think of, the housing co-op beat out the apartment building. Which caused me to wonder why HUD, why the U.S. government doesn't give more money to limited equity co-ops getting people. Now, the way they're doing it is the opposite from what I was doing. They're doing it from ground, from bottom up, looking and trying to get people to change. What I have found is when they created these limited equity co-ops, you had to train people to become a um, an owner, from a tenant to an owner. And once they, they got trained to what it meant to be an owner, they automatically did the things that you talked about. They stayed there longer. They took better care of it. Therefore, you had lower um, maintenance costs. Uh, you, they, they even had things like less crime. Okay, so the whole community functioned better by being a co-op. So the question always became to me was, why doesn't the government put more of their money into co-ops? I have some answers. But I think that even the government would spend less money. Some of these places have been in existence for 40 and 50 years now, and they're in much better shape, physical shape and community-wise. So I do want to talk to these people, and maybe there are some things that we can do together. I can share with you all in Cincinnati some of the things that I have learned in this uh, housing co-op world and learn from you guys what you are doing, and we can get more of the federal government dollars to go into housing co-ops. What do you I think? I think that's fantastic. I mean, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And that's, that's a really important way to get the biggest bang for our buck in terms of uh, spending money on uh, alleviating poor housing conditions, uh, helping people find a decent place to live, lifting some of the problems of homelessness and, I just think this this model is very useful, and, and we would love to work with you and learn your experience on, on that front. I heard Congressman Ellison, I, I think he's the congressman from, he's up either Wisconsin or Milwaukee. It's not Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or let's say Wisconsin right now. And he yeah. said that a house is like a bowl. He said if you have a bowl to make a cake, you, you, the house is the same thing for making a family. Try making a cake without a bowl. Put the eggs down, put the flour in there, put all of your ingredients and, and without the bowl. He said, you can't make the cake. And he said yeah. the same thing with a house. If you don't have a house, 
okay, then kids don't have a place to come and do their homework. They have no place to feel safe and secure. You can't raise a family, and I think that's one of the big issues with, with our cities, and even urban and cities right now, is too many people don't have a stable home. And the housing co-op is the way to go, at least compared to an apartment building. It is the way to go. All right, I don't want to preach, but I'm not excited about this. Oh, yeah, in my view, it's not preaching. It's telling the actual experience of organizations like Cincinnati Union Co-op Initiative that this kind of model works. It works, and it works for the majority of the people. Yes, not the minority. That's again the way the reason I like it, and. We only have about seven more minutes, and I want to talk a little bit about the values. The the, the values of a co-op are, we talked about self-help, self-responsibility, democracy, equality, equity, honesty, social responsibility, the values. And the seven principles, I I visited a co-op in New Jersey that had paid off their mortgage, and they were celebrating 40 years. And they asked me to come up and speak, and they had, uh, for their home, they had we live here and we own it. I said, I want you to add one more. You, you live here, you own it, and you control it because yeah. that control is so, so, so very important. Seven, volunteer and open membership. I like that. Being African-American, it's everybody and anybody can come in. Democratic yeah. member control, that's for one member, one vote. Member economic participation, you put money in. And as the Dame Pauline Green told me when she was on the program, when there's distributions, you're able to take money out and build wealth. Number four is autonomy and independence. This is the control. Nobody else can come in and control it, not government, not your um, financial people. You have to make sure it's autonomous and independent. Number five is education, training, and information, which is the first reason I like it because I've taught field for 12 years, and I have found that when people can use the data, when they can use it, then the knowledge becomes alive right away. It sort of like bursts into existence. And this is what this training does to me, that you get everyday common people without high school degrees, without college degrees, to come and learn what they need to learn to run a business, run it together. And number six is cooperation among cooperatives. We talked about that a little earlier. And number seven is concern for community. And those are the seven principles and the Mondragon have those seven, and they have a few more. And I, so that gets to the next question to you is, why do you need a union? Because I felt like if they owned it and controlled it, and they own the business, so they vote for a board of directors, the board of directors hire the management, so they, they have control over it. Why do you need a union? Well, there's three areas that I think the union is especially good at. And, uh, you know, I think... In terms of internally, the union can help uh, make the co-op live up to its own principles. And uh, everybody, you know, we're, as they say in Mondragon, we're definitely human beings. Our situation improve their performance, uh, heal whatever problems they're having rather than it being a, a fierce conflict and uh, that you know, it gets out of hand and a couple other things that the union is good at is that the union helps protect uh, workers in all businesses in a certain industry. So if some workers, let's say you have in the windshield-making industry in the, in the world, you have some workers that are building windshields for automobiles that are 
treated terribly, and the owners of those factories make a lot of profit. Phil, we, because Phil, we only have about 45 seconds, so can you give me that last one? <laughs> yeah. Okay, the last reason? Well, the, the last reason is uh, that it really helps with social transformation over the whole economy. Okay. And, and that's why I would just like to encourage people to look up this model, study it, and I really appreciate very much being invited on your show. Phil, thank you. Thank you so much for being on it. And as we leave this Thanksgiving Day, do you like what you're doing? Again, Phil, thanks a lot. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.